The scripture this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young people, because you have conquered the evil ones. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young people, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away. But those who do the will of God live forever. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Just as a kind of an announcement quickly. So this uh I believe that the custom here has been to receive communion on the first Sunday of the month. I didn't know that last month, and that was when I began with you, so um, so we didn't last month. But after the sermon, we will be doing that, and um, the ushers will then also take them, take the elements to the uh, the, the workers and the children uh, back in the in the Sunday school area. So just know that. Um, also, thought I should explain there kind of a weird moment there at the beginning. That's a, a weird psalm to read. So I tend to be uh, a lectionary preacher. Some of you don't have any idea what that is. Um, lectionary is, a, is kind of a, an intentional grouping of texts where there's an Old Testament, there's a, a, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel text that the church all over the world will use. There's, there's a couple different lectionaries based on the different kind of denominations or movements. But it's, things, it's something that was put together a long, long, long time ago. Um, and it's a way I like. It's a way that it makes sure that, that people work through all of Scripture. Um, so that, like, for example, what I always use as an example is I love the Gospel of Luke. And so if, I would, if it was just up to me, I'd probably always read the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but, but with the lectionary, you work through every Gospel in a three-year cycle and um, work through Old Testament passages that typically would never get worked through, including Psalm 137, which goes really well with um, today, what we're going to hear about, about the world. Uh, but it's also just a really difficult passage. Passage, or at least for me, as I was reading it all week, I'm thinking, I don't really want to read this psalm as a, as a welcome. So I'm not preaching from the lectionary right now. I'm doing a series on, on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But I'm using the psalm passage every week that's assigned as our call to worship. I like to do that. That's something that the people of God have done for a couple thousands of years, is to read the psalms as, as ways of gathering for worship, as songs even. So anyways, that was a kind of a pastoral moment where I'm like, I don't really want to read this passage. But yet it does apply. And um, I don't want to ever think about babies being dashed against the rocks, but that's where the people of Israel were at that moment, uh, lamenting where they were. So anyways, if you were like, what's, what's the pastor doing there? That was kind of an internal moment of 
weirdness reading scripture. So, anyways, <clears throat> good to be here with you again this morning as we continue our look at the letters, uh, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, last week, we heard uh, this kind of thesis statement that, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Serves as a, as a thesis for all of these, these letters. I realized that my, uh, my need for reading glasses is finally catching up for me, even, even when preaching. So, uh, I had LASIK done, which was amazing, best thing I've ever done, and I can see wonderfully, but they said, you're going to have to use reading glasses like everybody else. And I do use them when I read, but now I'm realizing I need it when I, when I preach and I'm looking down. So. so, the thesis for these letters is that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. We were told that holiness is, is not so much about claiming perfection, so much as confessing our imperfections and allowing God to, to inhabit those and cleanse us and purify us and make us holy, to make us perfect, if you will. That, that, that holiness, that Christian perfection, something that's talked about a lot in our tradition, is, is less about what we do and more about what God does and allowing that to happen and, and resting in Him. And that if we are in the light, imagery all through these letters, light and darkness, that if we're in the light, we're going to walk in the light. In other words, our actions will, will speak to this. And today, um, today, John is going to write a bit more about um, kind of why he's writing. He's going to explain more his purposes for writing. And he addresses, it's kind of a strange, if you notice that, or if you're following along, uh, there's a formulaic uh, group of passages, uh, verses here at the beginning. He addresses uh, little children, fathers, and young people. Sort of strange. But we're going to look at that, try to make some sense out of it, and see what we can, what we can take from, from this passage. So these three groups. He essentially says, little children, fathers, young people, little children, fathers, young people. He goes through it twice. So to little children, which basically could mean two things. Either the young, like the lit literal the young, or uh, this is something you see in the New Testament often. Little children can refer to those who have, who have just come to faith. So those who are just, maybe they've just been baptized, they've just received the, the, the news of, of Jesus and, and, and accepted Him as Savior, and they're, they're trying to, to learn what that means, right? So little children could mean literal little children, uh, like a Sunday school class or those who have just accepted uh, Jesus as their as, as Savior, as King. And he says to them, this is kind of how we know this, he says, your sins are forgiven. That's kind of what happens first, right? This understanding of, of sins being forgiven. Your sins are forgiven on account of His name, of Jesus' name. He says that in verse 12. And the second time he addresses little children, uh, he, he reminds them or he encourages them and says, you know the Father. So, again, thinking whether it's maybe your like little children or new, people new to faith, he says, blessed are you because your sins have been forgiven and you know the Father. So things that were not there maybe yesterday or last week or whatever, you have these now. You have the forgiveness of sins. You know the Father. In other words, you know the newness of life now and it's invigorating. The newness of faith. You have this. It's new. It's invigorating. And, and embrace it. Okay, so he's in, encouraging little children. Then he embraces, uh, or he, he addresses fathers, again, twice. Fathers, and so fathers here, most likely, means leaders. 
um, it could mean, because of what he says, uh, it could mean some leaders that used to be part of Israel, that have, have accepted Jesus as their, as their Savior, as the Messiah, and now are part of this new Jesus movement. Remember, the, the letter uh, works against probably this group that I used, uh, I, I use this big word, these, these Gnosticizing, uh, Gnostic Judaizers, or Judaizing Gnostics. In other words, uh, people of, of the Jewish faith that were so against the idea that Jesus was divine, that he was the Son of God, that they ended up kind of embracing a, a very anti-physical teaching. So it could be that the fathers are just leaders, but, but there's reason to think that they could be leaders who have, have come out of the, the faith of Israel into this new Jesus movement, if you will. And the reason for that is he says twice, says the same thing, verses 13 and 14. He says, you, uh, you know him who was from the beginning. Like for, so whether they're, whatever their background is, but you know him who was from the beginning. Your, your faith is mature. It's old. You have a depth of faith. You've known him. He is the, the Lord that you know. The God you know is from the beginning. So he says you have a mature faith. Whatever, whoever exactly they are. Leaders is just a good idea. The leaders of this community are the communities that he's writing to, which we know uh, from especially Paul's letters, uh, contrary to popular belief, and, and included both women and men, lots of women leaders in the early church. Uh, they're just leaders. So fathers included all. So he's talking to those who are leaders, and he says, you have mature faith. So to one group, he says, you have that invigorating newness of faith. You have, to another group, you have mature old faith. And then finally to young people. Uh, this would be like an in-between group. So not the brand new believers or, or, ba- or little children. Not the older mature adults. Like the teenagers essentially. Those who are uh, kind of new to their faith and they're in the battle, right? They're in the trenches essentially. He says, you have conquered the evil one. Verse 13. And he also says you're strong and the word of God abides in you in verse 14. In other words, you're actively in the fight. You're overcoming the evil one. If you think about it, that's kind of a good way of, of, of addressing like the church as a whole. Hopefully, there's always new converts and little children. If you don't have those two things, you're in trouble. Hopefully, there are people in between who, who have faith. They've come to faith. Uh, but maybe it's just a few years old. Maybe it's still new, but it's 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 you know it's passionate. And then you have those who are who are older and more mature, who have been of faith for some time. They know what it's like to trust in God through the ups, but through the downs as well, right? And they've stayed with their faith. So, I mean, these letters. One one thing that makes these letters different than some of Paul's letters is we don't really know them as being addressed to a particular church. These letters are written as pastoral epistles to all. Uh, they very much make sense for a, a group like us to be reading them today. Taken together, what John is doing is he's, he's creating a family. He's using familial language. You've got children, you've got teenagers, you've got parents and grandparents. He's, he's creating this kind of identity for his audience, for the church who's receiving them. And then to all of this group, he says this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Verse 15. Uh, that which is of the world, he explains, if you need clarif- clarification, it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, 
and pride and riches. says that in verse 16. He warns, he says, that one reason why you shouldn't love the world and its ways is that the world and its desires are passing away. But those who do the will of God will abide forever. Well, what, is, what does John mean by the world? It's an expression used often. Uh, the New Testament especially uses this phrase. We use this phrase. But it's one of those that can mean lots and lots of different things. Uh, a good, safe way of understanding the world in the New Testament, especially in the, in the epistles, in the letters portion of Scripture, is that it doesn't mean the earth around you. One of the reasons I love this psalm. It doesn't mean the actual little world. If you think about it, the world is created by God. And what does God say? It is good. Right? And there's never a moment that we read about or that we know of where the trees throw up their hands in rebellion and shake their fists at God. Right? There's never a moment when the whales gather together and have some weird, uh, you know, uh, seance and reject God and worship the devil. These things don't happen, right? And there's places all throughout Scripture, the Psalms especially, where we're told that creation itself groans and longs for the Creator to come back and redeem all things, right? That um, Jesus says, if you won't praise me and praise God, the rocks will do so, right? So the world around us was created good and it, I mean, it, it didn't rebel. So he's not saying the world is bad. I mean, just stand outside and go and look west and you'll see the world's pretty amazing, right? The earth. It's good. What he means is the, the, the culture around us, the people around us, as organized or identified opposite of the gospel. Which is probably something that makes sense to us today. So it's like people, culture, whatever. Culture's a weird word that can mean lots of things, but we'll just use it. Culture around us, around, especially identified against or over and against the gospel. Okay. So what he means is basically, he's, he's created a bit of a family. He's used some language to create a, a sense of family, kind of like a church. And then whatever the world is, it's sort of the opposite of that. It's like the anti-family or something, the, the, the group that's intentionally different not just different by chance but like intentionally different the group who uh, culture organized in opposition of the gospel so so that the, what he's getting at the world this culture around us would be a culture that he identifies as um, their moral compass is one defined by um, the, the flesh the eyes by the pursuit of riches the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pursuit of riches. That that's how decisions are made or that's where priorities are, are found. So, you know, culture around us says things like, uh, you, can, you can do whatever you want with whoever you want at any time you want, right? As long as those people you're doing those things with are okay with it. Uh, or culture around us says, you know, it used to be that it meant, um, and used to be is a weird phrase, but something like, you can do whatever you want, was a way of saying, like, you could grow up to be the president, uh, or you can grow up to be a uh, marine biologist. Now it means, like, you can be any little, anything at all you want, right? Anybody you want, you just make that decision and be that. 
it's confusing, it's strange, it's complex. Right now, I'm glad that the world around us at least has some limits, like consent, you know, that uh, out this democracy, these views that like our rights end where others begin. That's good. It's good that we do that. It's good that we do at least have these limits out there that you can do all these things or whatever you want so long as you're not actively hurting other people. That's good. But John... Believe it or not, the, we, we think that the world is so crazy and different today than it ever was. Just read a little bit about what it was like in Rome, what it was like in Greece. It's really not. It just feels different to us. The church has always been a strange little subculture within a big, weird world. Okay, Israel was the same way. And what John wants to say is, whatever is going on, whatever their rules, their limitations, it's different. The world is different. Okay, he says the world makes its decisions by what your body wants, by what your eyes want, by what your wallet wants, by by power, greed, and lust. Okay, these things, because of sin, come pretty naturally to us. We know that we all have, or will, or did struggle with those things. But what he says is those things which seems so natural all around us, that ultimately they lead to destruction. That ultimately they will, they will consume us. Those, those things, that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, uh, greed for wealth, are all consuming. Those kinds of, of desires, which we've all experienced, don't usually have boundaries. They don't usually say like, oh, just this, that, that'll be enough. Or, or just, just that, that's all I need. It grows and it grows and it's all consuming until who is it that ends up getting consumed? Me, you, us. The, these kinds of desires, when left unchecked, when they are our goal, when they're our moral compass or our whatever we're striving for, they ultimately end up in self-consumption. They destroy us. Fire is a great image as we try to think about what he's getting at. Okay? Fire, uh, if we think about uh, the, the, the burning bush story. Right here, Moses encounters this burning bush, this awesome, amazing experience where this fire is, is burning, it's hot, it's, it's, it draws him in, and yet it doesn't consume the bush that it's in. Fire is the image used all throughout the Old Testament, especially in really all of Scripture, for the holiness of God. In the, the Church of the Nazarene logo, that's what fire means there. It's, it's this it connections to Pentecost as well, but especially this idea that God's holiness is a, is a fire that blazes. And yet, it doesn't just wantonly destroy. On the other hand, these, these, uh, these other, these lusts of the flesh, lust of the eyes, greed that, that John talks about, these things also, fire makes sense. Of, have you ever seen a forest fire? And I know you've seen the results of a forest fire, but if you've ever been up close and seen a forest fire, even a controlled burn, it's terrifying. And it, they, it doesn't, you know, a fire doesn't start and think, I'm just going to burn this hillside because it needs it, and then I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, fizzle up. It doesn't happen. A forest fire starts burning without any 
concern for boundaries and it just burns and burns and burns and only if you know the right weather conditions happen or people gather with that and fight against it put it out but but a, a forest fire is awesome and amazing in what it does and yet it is totally destructive and consumes everything in its course it doesn't respect this house or that tree line or you know this property line it just burns and burns until everything is destroyed this is this is essentially what john is talking about he says if you let these sorts of things be your driving focus right if you let these kinds of things be your moral compass which these are what the world uses it kind of because of sin it feels natural to us we want this. We want that. We want money and pride and power and all that stuff. But if we let that be our focus, it's like starting a forest fire. And good luck getting it out. So the early Christians knew this. This was one of the things that made the early church so weird. Um, they, they knew that like you could get married and you can participate in these kinds of activities. You can work a job and earn money. You can see good things and want to have nice things, but with limits. That we, we impose limits on ourselves and limitations and, and, and so forth because we know that if, if we just let our passions burn unchecked, they'll burn us up. They'll burn the world up. So the early church talked a lot. They used this expression called uh, ordering your desires or ordering one's desires. They actually learned this from... The ancient Greeks, as, as out of um, control sometimes as their culture was. But the early church talked about ordering desires. So that things like, you know, there's a reason why people are, are drawn into lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, into, into uh, greed and the pursuit of wealth. Within particular boundaries, you know, marriage boundaries or, or um, you know, uh, certain types of uh, money can really take over, right? Uh, but all kinds of bound within certain boundaries, these things are good and can glorify God and we were made for them. But if we let them take over, they consume everything. I remember a, a, a good illustration you can do with youth, I've done this before, is take something like, like the sun, some beautiful, amazing thing, and you could take a coin, right? a little tiny coin. Have you ever done this one where you, know, you hold it up? As big and amazing as the sun is, it just takes a little quarter, even a penny, and if you hold it in the right place, it completely blocks out the sun. It's a simple little, little image, but the idea is that even something very small can, can blot out something as big as the sun, can, can end up destroying you. And so the idea that the early church talked a lot about was how do we find a way to take those things that we, that we want, that we desire, that we, that we love, things of the flesh, money, power, sex, the kinds of stuff that, you know, can burn out of control. How do we take those things and put them in a proper proportion in a, in, a, in a place where they're underneath God so that we love them but we don't worship those things all kinds of things can be filled into those desires the love of our country the love of our families um, other I've already mentioned some of the other desires so many things that can be good and just and right when properly placed underneath God can so quickly take the place of God, can so quickly blot out the whole sun 
effectively beginning a forest fire that will burn without control until ultimately you and I get consumed. What he's saying is this is what's happening in the world. They're like us. They have desires. But they, they don't seem to understand that those desires can destroy them. So he says you've got to learn this. You've got to put some limitations on yourself. You've got to understand that God is our ultimate desire. That our hearts are restless, as St. Augustine says. And that ultimately our hearts will only find rest in Him. That He's our one true desire. And that if we place these other things underneath Him and learn how to love them in proportion to, but not over God or over and against God, that we can have balance. That we can be close to the fire of God's holiness without being consumed as opposed to the forest fire that burns out of control. Hopefully that's not rambling and that makes sense. God and God's kingdom are our ultimate desires for John, for Paul, for the gospel writers. And it's really tricky to learn that. So much of life as a disciple of Christ is learning what desires are we allowed to fulfill? How do we do so underneath God as our ultimate true desire? How do we live healthy, balanced lives, not raging out of control? I think it's safe to say that the world around us, it's confused, it's confused right? There's confusion all around. I really don't think that it's any different than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 200 years ago. But for us, it feels real new and different and strange because this is where we're living right now. And a, and a good safe word, we could go into, we could use other words, but a good safe word is that the world around us, there's lots of confusion. And it's a confusing place. It can be a confusing place to raise children in or to live in and to make decisions. And yet the world around us is also full of goodness, full of God's creation and, and people who God longs for a relationship with. And so much of our job is to be his disciples, to go and to love and serve those around us, to help them see that there's a different way to be. I don't think... What, what you don't read in here, John is clear. He says, don't love the world or its, or its ways because ultimately it will lead to destruction. What he doesn't say is, so therefore go to war against the world. Get your spiritual armor or get real armor and go to war against them and conquer those bad, confused people. He doesn't say that. never says that. It's not the ways of God. Instead, and if we do that, it's tempting to do that. You know, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know that I see the heads nodding. I know the world is confusing around us, and that's a nice way to put it. I know that. And I know it's tempting to think that we need to put on the armor of God or other armor, which I really hope you don't do, and go to war with the world. What I can tell you is I think it's a war you're going to lose, and what we lose in our midst is the witness to Christ. If, if we try to go to war with the world... We basically have just un unleashed that forest fire. We just have decided that this is the passion that we want to want to embrace. And what we lose is our witness. And maybe worse. Instead, what John talks about, and this is consistent all throughout, is that we are... Think, think from the very beginning. This is why God calls Abram. 
He says, I want to make a people out of you. The rest of the world doesn't know me. They're confused, but I want them to. I want to take you and I want to show you a different way. I want to have a relationship. I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. The part of the covenant we often forget about that's so important. I want you to be a weird group of people that doesn't make any sense so that people scratch their head and wonder, why do they do that? And then it gets even weirder when it gets to Jesus and it's like, wait, you're supposed to love your enemies? What is wrong with you people? Right? That's, that's the consistent story of the last several thousand years of, of, the ch- of the church growing. You know, when the church grew exponentially in the first few centuries, it didn't grow because of bouncy houses or carnivals or big giant mega churches with football players preaching. It grew because simple, everyday, ordinary people were kind to their neighbors at a time when that didn't make any sense. It grew because people believed that there was a God in heaven who said, I shouldn't go participate in these activities and it's okay if you punish me for it. I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to love you and I'm going to pay my taxes and I'm going to be kind or whatever. Because uh, when, other, when orphans were being sold into slavery and neglected, they would say, no, these, these are precious to God. Let's find a way to care for these children or their widows or people like that. That's how the church grew. We know that fact The church grew because of weird, strange individuals and communities that said, I don't know what's going on out there, and I don't really like it, but I'm called to be different. And so instead of going to war with them, they just decided to be different. And I think it's the same for us today. I think this is why John is saying this. He's basically saying, hey, look, uh, the the first century, second century, whatever, it's a lot like the... The 21st century, when the world outside is confusing, when it's chaotic, when it's violent, when it's just overflowing with lust and greed and weirdness, the church is called to be orderly, not chaotic. The church is called to be peaceful. The church is called to be loving. The church is called to be strange at times. And when that happens, here's what happens. Distance is created. In a confusing, weird, violent, crazy culture, if the church says, no, I'm not going to bite, I'm not going to comment, oh, we would do so, so good if we just didn't have faith, uh, any social media, any of that kind of stuff. If instead we just said, instead of that, I'm, I'm going to live with different priorities. People are going to start noticing. When that happens, there's a gap that's created. There's a distance that's created. And when that happens, the world, this is actually a gift to give to the world because the world begins to know, oh, we're different. We call it the world or whatever you want to call it. And the church, the people of God, they're different. We're not called to go to war with the world. We're called to recognize them as our sisters and our brothers and our neighbors and our friends, but who are also confused and confusing. And to say, I think there's a better way. Let's live in the better way. Let's, let's follow those rules. Let's not let our passions overwhelm us and overtake us, John says. And when we do that, we become a holy family. And it's something that is, it's proven that it's appealing to the world. May not draw in thousands upon thousands, you know, tomorrow like some, uh, you know, huge event, but it will be lasting. And in that process, 
the world becomes to know that it's the world and the church begins to know that it's the church. How can we expect the world to know that it's the world after all if we don't live differently? We live in a really divided, confusing, stressful, hate-filled, tense world. And it's easy for us to think that we should... First of all, it's easy to just join into that because we have the same desires. It's also really easy to think our job is to fight them. What's hard and what the gospel teaches us is that instead we're called to live different. And that when we do so, we're going to struggle and we're going to fail. And then we get to really show our colors by sharing that failure and those struggles with our community, with our families, and by saying, but I'm, con- I'm, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to live as he taught us by the power of the Spirit to be different from those around us, come what may. It's a simple message, but it's one that's challenging, challenging, challenging. Amen? There's, there's three, uh, I believe it's in your, I know some of you said I said it too quick or whatever, so I put our takeaways in the bulletin here for you, but just three simple summary statements for the sermon today. John uses familial language, family language, to unify his audience and to create identity. He wants his, the, the, the recipients, like us, to think of themselves as a family, as an alternate family than the world. You've got children who are children, but also young in faith. You've got teenagers who, yes, are teenagers, but also who are kind of in the prime, out in the trenches. And then you've got seniors, fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, who have had faith for a long time. They know what it's like to lose, to suffer, and to still hold on to Jesus. Uh, and he says, together, that's the only way, together as a family, because the world is hard to resist, but together you can be different. The second, the world, for John, it's the surrounding culture that exists in opposition to the gospel. It does not mean the earth. It doesn't mean rocks and trees. It means the culture identified around us in opposition to us. Or who's just real different. Okay? And the third is that we're not called to go to war with culture, but to live counterculturally as a completely different culture altogether. And as we do so, we may not be popular, we may not be powerful, but we'll be faithful. And I guarantee it, if we do that, the world takes note. And as the world gets more and more violent and chaotic and confusing, if we just play into that and fight, there's no appeal to us at all. But if we just live totally differently, at first we don't make sense and we're weird. And then at some point we begin to be, wow, why? That's different. You forgave her? You love your child even though they they do that? Why do you give your money to those people? You know, stuff like that. They begin to notice. Then they ask questions. Then you can answer. Uh, the, The heart of our resistance. The very reason why we live so differently is here at this table. Find these things. 
at the table of uh, at communion at the eucharist the great thanksgiving we remember that our savior was born a simple peasant child he was a refugee at one point that he lived as a carpenter that he forgave people who persecuted him that he didn't come in tanks and planes and he didn't bring military force he didn't overthrow rome like they wanted he came and offered himself as a sacrifice to break the cycle of the world and to change things. It, to, to continue the imagery, it's like he took himself and threw himself onto a fire to, to take the fire onto himself to keep it from burning anymore. At the table, we remember that we serve a Savior who is a sacrifice. He's a lion who is a lamb who has offered himself up once and for all so that the people of the world, so that God's creation could be reconciled and redeemed, not by conquering in the way we think of, but by serving. So we receive his broken body and his poured out blood in a way that says we, we become like him. That's what we're called to do at the table to become like him. I believe that uh, this is one of those new things here. So the ushers, I'm going to call them forward. And we're going to take the elements. And we're going to pass them out to you. And then, um, as I say a few words, we'll receive together. Does that sound right to everybody? What we normally do? Okay. All right. Bless you. There's no space back here. Okay. All right. So as they come around, these are, uh, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is the body and blood of Christ offered for you. In the Church of the Nazarene, we believe that these elements, this table, is open to all. Wesley talks about communion as a converting ordinance, which means if you don't believe that you're here, if you want to receive these elements it can be a way of giving you grace for the first time. No, no one is excluded from the table in our tradition, so long as you know what it is. So these are elements reminding us of Christ's body and blood, broken for us, shed for us, offered freely to us, that we would be more like Him. I suppose I probably should have taken... Uh, received one as well. So I'll be sure. They'll bring it to me. Okay. And afterwards they'll go to the Sunday school classroom. When we think of the world in light of this particular sermon, and you'll, you'll learn this about me the more that you get to know me, uh, I don't do a lot of preaching against the world. It's all over. We see it. We're of different opinions on the, some of these things. But confusing is a good word. And it seems more and more, it gets more and more confusing. And we don't know what to do. This is a place where we come together. We become family. This is a place where, actually, this is an act of defiance against the world that says we, we have a whole different way of being. We have a whole different politic. We have a whole different way of life. Countless people have been martyred 
through the centuries for doing this and for not taking the Caesar oath or other things, which were so simple to take. We gather and we receive these elements and we do so in remembrance of him that we might be more like him. Looks like we almost all have our elements. So we remember at this table that Jesus gathered with his disciples in a small room, inconspicuous, out of the way. He'd washed their feet. He had served them. And he said, hey, this, this bread, this is my body. It would be broken for you. Take and eat. He took a cup And he said, this cup, this cup is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins for you and for the many. As often as you gather together, he says, uh, eat eat this bread, drink this cup and do so in remembrance of me. And so we do that all these years later across the the world. we, We gather together. We receive these elements. We proclaim the very mystery of our faith that Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. I I think everybody's almost received their elements. If you have, remember, do so in remembrance of Jesus. Take the bread, drink the cup. Are we short? We are. That's a good problem to have. Did did anyone here not receive the elements? One, two. Okay. Here comes some more. I did not yet. Did you? We're figuring this out. It's fun. All right. You did. Okay. Take one. Got a few at the back. If you haven't, Christ's body broken for you and his blood shed for forgiveness of sins, receive the elements. Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy sacrifice in which you have given yourself for us. Grant that we would go into the world in the strength of your spirit to give ourselves for others. In the name of your Son, we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen.